0: Well, I invite you to open up our scripture passage to Luke 24, verses 13 to 38. Luke 24, 13 to 38. Starting in verse 13. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. And are slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would break into our lives. We pray that your word would break into our hearts this morning as we read and study and proclaim your word. We pray that you would speak to every one of us. You know our hurts. You know our sorrows. And we ask that you would speak your words of life into our soul right now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It was around this time last year, I uh, was reading this book called Fortunate Son, uh, which was the autobiography of a man by the name of Lewis Poehler. Now, if you're familiar with anything about marine history, the most famous marine is a marine by the name of Chesty Poehler, uh, who served for a, a very long career, retired as a major general, I believe. But he was most famous for the Battle of Chosin in the Korean War. And it was in the northern mountains of what is now North Korea in wintertime. And I remember in boot camp, we were told stories of these Marines who battled negative 40-degree temperatures and trying to survive, and to make it worse, they discovered they were surrounded by divisions of the Chinese army. And so, when Lewis, or chesty Polar commanded this one lone Marine regiment, discovered that he was surrounded and outnumbered by at least 10 to 1 by the Chinese, his response, which is his most famous line ever, was this. Well, we've been looking for the enemy some time now. When we finally found him, we're surrounded. That simplifies things. And then he went on to become a war hero. And Lewis Puller is Chesty Puller's son. And you can imagine the shoes that he had to fill. His father was the most famous Marine. But he was eager to do it, and he joined the Marine Corps, and was soon sent off to Vietnam. And a few years into his tour, leading a patrol, he stepped on a booby-trapped howitzer round, which then exploded, took off two of his legs, a good chunk of one arm, and severely injured his other hand. And suddenly, the son of this most famous war hero, who had served for 40 years in five different wars, Well, his son didn't even make it through his first tour and was sent home early. What do you do when the future that you dreamed of and hoped for gets blown off with your legs? And in his book, his autobiography, he describes that roller coaster ride of up and down, trying to rebuild his life, but always living in the shadow of everything that he'd lost. And he tells of the recurring nightmares, the panic attacks during the day, growing dependency on alcohol in order to make it through each day. And he was just trying to find something that he could hang his hope on. Maybe you found yourself in a similar circumstance. What do you do when you face the death of your dreams? What do you do when so much of what you'd hoped for or thought your life would look like are blown up? Either by a 95-pound howitzer around or a medical diagnosis, or a divorce, or a loss of faith. You find yourself doing something you never thought you would, and now it's changed the rest of your life. The death of a friend, a husband, a wife, a loved one, sexual abuse, the loss of your job. What do you have to live for when so much of what you were living for is now gone? What do you have to look forward to when what you were looking forward to has been violently ripped away from you. This Advent, the theme is hope breaks in. Advent is a time of waiting. It is a time of longing. It's when we remember how God's people of old, living in a time of darkness, waited for light to break in, for the Messiah to come. And in a similar way, we are waiting for the Messiah to come again. And what I want us to remember through this series is that Christian hope is always a hope that breaks in. It's not a hope that kind of goes up and down depending on the circumstances of your day, but it is a hope that upends all of your circumstances. It is a hope that is more powerful than death. It is a hope that transforms death from a dead end and blows the back out of it and turns what is our greatest fear into a gateway to glory. And what I want you to remember this morning is that Christians have hope after death. Christians have hope after death. We're going to look at this three ways. First, the death of hope, the word of hope, and then hope breaks in. So the death of hope. Jesus has just been crucified, killed, and buried. And now a few days have passed. And his most loyal followers are starting to realize Jesus is really dead. His body's cold by now. This wasn't a bad dream. And so some of his disciples start walking home. Jesus had 12 primary disciples, 11 of whom become apostles, but he had a larger following of other disciples. And two of these disciples start going back to Emmaus, which was their home, which we learn later on when they invite Jesus in for dinner. But you don't go back home if you're optimistic about things. You head back home when you realize it's over. it be kind of a silly example, but, but one we can understand is, you know, say one of your kids really wants the latest Xbox Series X, right? Let's say they've just come out with a new one and it goes on sale at midnight tonight. And you go to Best Buy, the doors will open at midnight and you wanna get one to surprise your son or your daughter with that for Christmas. And you get there at, say, 10, but you realize hundreds of people have gotten there before you. And so you don't leave. You get in line. And you wait. The door's open. You're making your way forward. You're, you're wondering, do they have enough? Will there be one when I finally get in there? And then as soon as you're about to be able to touch the entrance to the store, an associate comes out and yells, we're all sold out, guys. Go back home. And there's that collective sigh, and suddenly all those people that had hope turn around And go home, because there's no point in waiting now. And Jesus' disciples didn't see any point in waiting around now. It's over. Jesus is really dead. Let's just go home. And on their way, walking back, there's another traveler who catches up to them. And we know it's Jesus, but they don't. And the language is a bit ambiguous as to why they don't. They were kept from recognizing him. Many commentators think it's some combination of the heavenly nature of Jesus' resurrection body that transformed him in some way and evidence that these disciples, of all the things that they were thinking could have happened to Jesus, the last thing in their mind was resurrection, so they weren't even looking for him. Think about it this way. The darkness of their loss was so great that they didn't even have eyes to see the good news right in front of them. Maybe you felt that way. The depression is so deep, you can't see the good walking right next to you. And in Luke's gospel, it's a little hard to to know how all these timelines fit together, but in Luke's gospel, who does he show us are the first people to see Jesus? Look earlier in chapter 4. We see it's not the women who come to the tomb to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. They see angels who say he's risen. It's not Peter who then runs to the tomb. He only sees burial clothes. The way that Luke arranges his account of the resurrection shows that he's emphasizing the two people that Jesus first shows up to are two of the people who seem to have the least faith. The ones who are already walking back home. Jesus seeks out those who have given up hope. Hope breaks in even when you're not looking for it, even when you're walking home. Some of you struggle with this. Do you think your hope depends on how strong your faith is in the moment? Do you think that Jesus' desire to care for you and give you words of hope is tied to how hard you're trying? And so you're always living, trying so hard to get his love, or you're so far gone, you're like, why would Jesus even care about me? Have you already given up hope and are walking back home? Friends, do you see how much Jesus cares for the hopeless? When they'd turned their backs from the tomb and were walking home, he shows up in their life, but they don't see it yet. So Jesus asks, well, what are you guys talking about? This question stops them in their tracks. I like how the NLT puts it at the end of verse 17. They stopped short sadness written across their faces. Are you serious? Have you been living in a cave the last three days? <laughs> what news? But Jesus of Nazareth, he was, notice the past tense there, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And what, a, what a contrast here, right? They still remember all these wonderful things that Jesus has done, and yet none of them are powerful enough to break through their present pain. He was a prophet, but now it's all over. And aren't we the same? There are many ways in which Jesus has broken into your life over the decades. He's answered your prayers. He's cared for you. He's taken care of these things that you're worried about. And yet, no matter how many those are, they aren't powerful enough to break through the present darkness. And then verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Again, notice it's in the past. It's actually called the past perfect or pluperfect, which it's the difference between saying, we hope to get that Xbox, where you're still wrestling with it, shows the disappointment, but, but it's, you're still coming to realize it, and saying, I had hoped to get that Xbox, which means there's a finality to it. There isn't any hope left. We had hoped, Jesus was the one to save us. But it's all over now. And hope is all the more difficult when you're hoping for good things. And you see that hope dashed. You hope to get married. You hope to have kids. You hope to buy a house. You hope for healing in your marriage. You hope for things to get better. I mean you can understand why God doesn't fulfill some of your hopes when they're just, you know, really out there or, or kind of extra things, right? Like I would really hope to be able to buy a Model S Tesla, but it's a $120,000 car, so I'd be happy to settle with their entry-level Model 3. My hopes won't be dashed too much. But when you're just hoping for things to stop hurting so much, you wonder, why do those hopes get dashed? All I'm asking is for life. And these disciples were hoping for something that God himself had promised he would send a Messiah to redeem Israel. And they knew those hopes. And we looked at it last week. Every decade and century, it felt like things are getting worse. Listen to Jeremiah 33, 14 to 16. The days will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I have promised them. In those days and at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. In that day, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And Israel was waiting for those days for centuries. And they got their hopes up. Something looked like it could work. Nope. Those hopes are dashed. And here comes a man named Jesus who starts to check all of those boxes of what they have been hoping for. And then he gets killed. I guess we were wrong. He wasn't the one. And then notice verse 22. Some of our women and disciples went to the tomb, but they didn't find the body. That had happened just a little bit earlier that morning. And we know the end of the story, so we read it, and it seems so obvious to us. Well, don't you know Jesus is alive? Can't you put the pieces together? Even if you don't know how the story ends, you would think that is enough of a curveball to at least get you to stick around in Jerusalem to see what happens next. Okay, something's happening here. I don't want to miss this. But for these disciples, their cloud of mourning was so dark that the empty tomb wasn't a, a ray of hope, but an indication things must be getting worse. Tell me someone's stolen the body now? What are they going to do to him? can he just rest in peace and we just forget about all this? I can't handle this anymore. Let's go home. And this brings us to our second point, a word of hope. So Jesus responds to them on the road, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Suddenly this traveler becomes an unwelcome interloper. And it's fine when he's asking them questions, but now he starts to insult them. Just imagine Jesus' response here. Like if, if you or I were in Jesus' shoes, our first move would have been to run up to the disciples and shake them and say, look, it's me, I'm back, it's okay, I'm here. But Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? Before giving them himself, he gives them his word. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He's pointing them back to something that they've had all along in the darkness. Don't you see? It's right here. The scriptures that you've grown up with that you say you know. Look, it's right here. This was part of the plan. This should have been your anchor during these dark days. For Jesus, he shows death is not the end. It's just a new beginning. And yet for so many of us, death has the last word. When there's a heartbeat, you have hope whether it's with a baby in your womb or a loved one in the hospital. When there's a brain signal, think, okay, well, maybe things will turn around. But when that line goes flat, hope goes with it. It's over. Death gets the last word. And that word of death shouts louder in our ears than any other word of hope. And the hope that you'd hung on that heartbeat gets pulled down into that inky darkness of death, and your light goes with it. And so what do you do? What hope do you have when the darkness of death seems to get the last word? What keeps you from falling into the blackness when darkness has become your only friend? God's promises are your protection. See what Jesus does here? The promises of God given in his word, he says, this is the life raft that will carry you when you've given up hope. When you can't rest, when you feel like you're sinking down and you can't swim anymore, you can't tread water, and you just give up, God's word is what will keep you from sinking deeper. God's word is what you can rest your heart in when you can't try any longer. God's promises in his word that you have right now in his scripture speaks a reality into your life that is more sure, more real than even the pain of death. And Jesus modeled this on the cross. When he was surrounded by death and the world went dark, what did he do? He was meditating on God's word. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He couldn't hold on any longer, and he rested in his father, and we must as well, in his promises. Are you resting on God's promises? Some of his most ultimate promises we see at the end of Revelation. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be written on their heads. And there will be no more night there. No need for lamps or sun. For the Lord God will shine on them. As we're in Advent, we're in this time of waiting. And we're waiting for those promises to be fulfilled. And those promises, what does Jesus show us? Are what you must hang on to. What you must rest your hope on. Are those promises... The controlling reality in your life right now, or are the words of hopelessness that are speaking into your ear what has your attention? What has the last word in your life? Death or God's word? And brothers and sisters, we've got to do so much better at this. What is coming out of your mouth? What is running through your mind at night when you're trying to sleep? What comes out of your heart that you feel with everything that is going on in our world and in your life, in your family right now? and Do you see hostility that comes out? Is it quarreling, jealousy, selfish ambition, division, envy, panic? What are you living with? What comes out when you wake up? What are you wrestling with when you go to sleep? How do you react when something bad happens to you? And now trace those emotions down to the root, into the heart. And what you'll discover is that the controlling reality of your heart are the words of death and the fear of it and the avoidance of it, not the promises of Christ. And this is so important for us to get ready, to get right right now. Because you know our world is hopeless and there is less and less light. And if we as God's people get sucked down with the rest of everybody else, what good is the church? Our world is living in a dark winter and you cannot see the buds of spring. And our world Needs more than anything else, people who will say and show don't lose hope. Christ is coming back. Come and discover the promises of Christ who has shown that death doesn't have the last word. Come and discover a hope that will break into your darkness. You can't be too far gone. It can't be too dark. Christ is coming. And what good are we as Christians? If we are just as angry and divisive and fearful and hopeless as everybody else, it shows that what our heart hopes in is not Christ, but the same things that everybody else is hoping in and can just as easily be taken away. And this brings us to our third point, hope breaks in. So the disciples have done that seven-mile walk and gotten to Emmaus, but it it seems that Jesus is going to keep going. So they insist, no, come, stay with us. Stay the night, it's getting late. It's interesting, even as hopeless as they were, that little act of hospitality, of faithfulness, reaps rewards they had no idea would be coming. It's a good reminder for us that even in the darkness, to keep showing up, keep doing those little acts and steps of faithfulness. And sometimes God will use those beyond your wildest dreams, like we see here. They sit down at the table. They're about to eat. And usually it was the host's job to give thanks for the meal, but Jesus takes over. And the language seems very deliberate. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Words that we hear every Sunday in Communion. It's describing Jesus' actions in the Last Supper. Now, these particular disciples weren't there for that. And it doesn't seem that Jesus is actually serving communion to them. But I think in the way that Luke frames this passage, he's drawing a connection that he wants us to see. What was one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, to remember me. And now Jesus, in a way that looks very similar to that meal of remembrance, does it and it causes those disciples to remember him, to recognize him, to see him there. When they least expected it, hope broke in. And then as soon as they recognize him, before they even touch him, he's gone. And now they're just completely overwhelmed and, and they are still talking with one another but that conversation has turned from despair to wonder how our hearts burned. We we knew something was going on when he was with us. When he opened the scriptures to us, he was here. And now they leave their plates still full and run back on that road they just had walked down, but this time they're not walking down with stooped shoulders, but their feet are light with rejoicing. It was their fastest 10K ever. And they discovered they weren't the only ones that Jesus showed up for. It's true, he is alive. We saw him as well. In Lewis Poehler's autobiography, he describes that roller road ride of trying to pick up the pieces of his life to make something good out of this new reality, to do something that would make his dad proud. And yet the shadow of death keeps pulling him down for every step forward, one to two steps backward. Yet the book ends on this high note. With him moving forward towards a better future, he writes... I realized if I could now summon the courage to forgive my government, to forgive those whose views and actions concerning the war differed from mine, and to forgive myself, I could perhaps move into the present, attain a degree of serenity, and find the reason for which I had been spared, first in Vietnam, and then a second time from an alcoholic death. And I closed that book, and I was moved by his story and the humanity and the struggle. And the book was written back in 1991, and so I was curious what had happened to him. And tears filled my eyes when I read that line on Wikipedia. Polar died from a self-inflicted gunshot, May 11th, 1994. Just a few years after he'd written those words. Went on in the days leading up to his death, Puller fought a losing battle with alcoholism that he'd kept at bay for 13 years, and struggled with a more recent addiction to painkillers, initially prescribed to dull continuing pain from his wounds. And I cried when I read that, as so I knew a small bit of that pain of returning for more and realizing some things that were taken, you'll never get back. And for so many of you, you're living in that pain. You see the death of your dreams. You spend so much time trying to reconstruct something out of the broken pieces. You're trying to maybe put them back together to say, let's get it to how it used to be, nothing happened here. Or you're trying to shape some new thing out of it, that's good. But eventually you come to this realization that it's gone. And it's never coming back. And it hurts so much. And whether those are the wounds of war, or sexual abuse, or abandonment, or trauma, or a life that is just a string of disappointments and pain, you finally realize there's no hope of it being like it used to be, or how you dreamed it would be. And for so many, when you get there, you ask, well, what's the point in continuing on? But that's why this passage matters to us. It shows what Christian hope is. That Christians don't have a nostalgic hope. A hope of returning to how it used to be. Christians don't ultimately long for the good old days. Because we know the best days are yet to come. Jesus could not enter into resurrection life unless he first embraced the pain and reality of death. And then he shows that is the model for every Christian's life to pick up your cross, to follow him, to bear the pain, knowing that this is not a detour of life, but the very path through which God will redeem my pain and suffering and turn it into something new and beautiful. We don't run from the darkness. We're able to walk through it knowing that Jesus has been there and he is with us right now. And he has showed us over and over again our greatest hope is not in looking back but in looking forward to what he has promised. Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am making all things new. And no matter how dark it may get and even if that ends in death you know that death is not the end but the first step to our glorious future because hope breaks in, and the best is yet to come. So friends, have you rested your hope in Jesus? In the dark of night, hold onto his promises, they are your hope. Maybe you don't have any more strength left to hold to his promises. Then rest your life on him. You always, no matter how weak you are, have the ability to rest on him, to surrender, to give yourself to him, and discover, and all those things that you're trying to manage, and you're trying to control, when you let go, you'll find yourself more surely in Jesus' arms, because you're not fighting against him anymore. He is your hope, and his hope breaks in. Is that what controls the day-to-day of your life? And here's our hope, Isaiah 25, 7 to 8. He will remove the cloud of gloom the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. That's our hope. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would be people of hope because we desperately need it, and your world desperately needs it. We pray that the truth of your word promises that are so sure that even though they are in the future, they are the most certain thing we have right now. And we pray that those certain promises would be the controlling reality of our life, that they would speak more clearly into our ear, than all of the other voices that cause us to fear. And we pray that you would transform us into a community of hope, a place where your hope has already broken in through the resurrection, and one day will become full when Jesus returns and completes his work of making all things new. Father, center us on that hope.